For initiative, so Larry, um, what was I mean? What was it like when you were when you, growing up in Kentucky? You know, and going and going off to be an artist sounds like sort yeah. of a a different way to grow up. It sure was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we um, when I was young, we lived. Uh, well, when I was young, um, I'm 62, so we're talking about the early 50s, right? Mm-hmm. And um, my father, after World War II, he got tuberculosis. And uh, so he was in a hospital uh, most of my childhood, uh, well, up until I was about 10 years old, I guess. And so he'd be gone for maybe a year at a time or so, and they would expect him to die. And uh, But to make that story a little shorter, my father is, turns 87 next week. He, he beat it. <laughs> He's still alive. Wow. So, that's but fantastic. at that time, there wasn't a cure, and, and they'd give him up to die many times. So it was just me and my mom lived in a little uh, four-bedroom house out in the country with no running water, no electricity, uh, which that was most people lived in the country in, in the early 50s didn't have running water or electricity. That was sort of rare. Later on, by the mid-50s, um, by 56, 57, most people started getting electricity and plumbing, you know. But uh, back when I was young, most of the people out in the country didn't have that. So we grew up, uh, I would draw by lamplight. And uh, and my mom had a large family, a lot of aunts and uncles, and they'd come to visit and tell stories and stuff. So uh, I think like a house at night lit only by lamplight was becomes very different. It's very mysterious, you know, and. And you go visit someone that you don't know the house that well, and at lamplight at night, you know, everything looks mysterious. And people sit around old coal stoves and tell uh, stories and make stuff up or tell scary stories that happened to them or their relatives, you know. And so it was fun. I I enjoyed that period. It was um, I got to live on a tail end of a period that was dying, that was going away. Did you get any training as a kid when you were? I mean, to to become an artist, how did you get? How did no, you know just, you're any uh, good at it? <laughs> I started drawing when I was young. My dad could draw well, so art, and my mom could draw pretty good. Both of them uh, just had a little bit of talent, you know. And um, uh, and so when I was in grade school, well, we didn't have any art that wasn't offered back then. Uh, uh, arts. Music was offered, maybe not as about it, but art wasn't offered much in, in a lot of schools. And uh, well, like my first grade, I went to one of them country school, you know, and with eight grades in there, so it so wasn't anything. But I sat there and drew all the time. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> but because uh, you know, maybe she would uh, uh, work with eighth with the first graders like in the morning, and then she'd work with them again in the evening. So. You had all day sitting in a chair, not making a sound, you know. Back then it was strict. There was no getting up, running around or anything. It was, you sit in your chair for however many hours, you know, and you didn't make a peep. And uh, so I would draw. And uh, I got in trouble for drawing my tablets up, so uh, <laughs> they had to take my tablet away from me and ration me papers because I'd go through a tablet. <laughs> and so... Uh, um, but, so I just, by the time I got uh, to, you know, high school and stuff, um, I was sort of known as an artist, you know. I could draw well, just naturally. So I went to college and majored in art, and so I got a BFA degree at, at West Kentucky University. So Yeah, I read about but the that fact was, that, uh, yeah. that you had yeah. a lot of your stuff stolen at your at your art show there. Is that, uh, true? Is that true? Well, right before the art show, I think it was, I can't remember, right afterwards, I did get some stuff stolen, but uh, um, uh, there's a, this weird character. He was in college that we'd float around in different people's apartments and stuff, wherever a party was at or whatever. He was just like the local. I don't know what he was like. He just, if you got to know him, he just sort of spread the gossip around. He just, he'd be at one, somebody's place one night and somebody else's place across campus the next night. And it's like he knew everybody. So he'd found out my art was missing. And, about a week later, he said, I don't know who's got it. 
I said, really? He said, yeah, I saw it hanging up in his room. I said, really? Oh, and uh, so I said, well, you negotiate. I want it back. And so he went and negotiated with the guy. Under promise I wouldn't get him thrown out of school, he'd return everything with nothing was said or done. So I agreed to that. So I got to our work back. And that's a pretty so good negotiation. Oh, that's a pretty good deal. But, yeah. but that was, but when I was having my senior show, uh, it was so popular that uh, they had to put out Hall Guards. Uh, there was something wow. in the gallery, so some show in the gallery, so I couldn't show in the gallery. So they had these big halls to show in, which is pretty common, you know. And uh, so my show went up in the halls. Well, they found people trying to steal it and stuff. So we had to, the whole time my show was up, we had to station guards because people was trying to steal pictures off the wall. So. <laughs> what kind of subject matter did you do back then? I was doing uh, uh, more surrealism and, and some early fantasy stuff. Oh, of really? course, my teacher didn't like the fantasy stuff, but they liked the surrealism. But, yeah. I mean, were you looking at other but fantasy artists I'm, back then? Well, I... I, I bet um, this was in what late sixties when my art show it was like sixty nine or seventy I guess mm-hmm. it was maybe it's the fall of seventy but about a year or so before that about sixty eight I guess Frank Frazetta's first Cohen covers came out uh. and uh, that just blew me away you know those early uh, Frazetta covers of, of Cohen. This became legendary pieces, you know, and uh, those covers just blew me away, and and uh, and really, I guess, got me more interested in the fantasy than anything. It's just like wow, I just because I always like adventure and a good story and a good yarn, and and the way I lived my life was always seeking adventure, you know, as a kid growing up and uh, out exploring cliffs and climbing them, and live most time in the woods and crawling into caves that was unexplored and everything else. And Wow. Luckily, I didn't kill myself growing up. <laughs> but um, uh, so when when that introduction of fantasy just blew me away, like, this is the greatest adventure kind of stuff there is, you know. They had to call him a book. <laughs> and and, uh, and shortly afterwards, somebody that. introduced me to do what? No, I was going to say, so not too soon after that, you had another cabinet adventure. I see that you were drafted into the Army, and you got to be a, yeah. an illustrator. Yeah. Well, what happened? Well, I was going to say before that, before I got out of college, so uh, uh, a friend of mine, he read the Conan books after he borrowed them from me. I, I threatened to kill him if he didn't return them because of the covers. <laughs> you know? And uh, so he read those, he liked them, so he found, he brought in another book later on. He said, sure. We got to read this. It's called The Hobbit, you know. <laughs> and oh. he just, those have just come out, you know. And so The Lord of the Rings, so I read all those. And I'm like, wow, this is cool stuff, you know. <laughs> and um, and so then, well, then I finished college, and uh, and I was drafted immediately uh, because uh, I was in the lottery when they thought I was going to be drafted. And my number was like 54. And so when you live in a small town, yeah. you're gone, yeah. you know. So, so, um, Anyway, uh, so I was drafted, and when I, uh, I got, uh, I, when you're going through basic training back then, you went to the area of what they call it throughout your dream sheet. What would you like to do in the Army? Because about everybody's going to Vietnam, so it didn't, didn't make much difference what you told them, you know. So <laughs> they want to go right. to Vietnam. I had friends there, and I had friends that was killed. And I was a friend that was a, uh, Tunnel ride, and I, I was a little big guy, and I sure didn't want to be a tunnel ride because he'd written letters home about, like, God bless, I don't want to do that. That's crazy. And uh, so so when I was filling out my dream sheet, I told him I was an artist. I'm like, oh, sure. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just great, you know. <laughs> I figured I had nothing to lose. What can they do to draft me? I mean, I was already drafted, so. <clears throat> and so the guy pointed a poster on the wall, like the Uncle Sam wants you poster. He said, can you art that good? I said, oh, yeah, no problem. I couldn't do that good, but <laughs> I just lie. Like, I can do anything, you know. He said, well, can you do it for the other post? I said, oh, yeah, no problem. He said, well, I want to see samples of your artwork if you're that good. So I said, okay, well, so I was at Station Fort Knox, which is only about 50 miles from home, 55 miles from my home. And my dad worked at Fort Knox Civil Service. So I sneaked one night and called my dad there wasn't cell phones or anything like that. So, <laughs> so there was pay phones and you, you wasn't allowed to use them. So I had to sneak out the night and use one. I called him and said, 
told me to meet me at a certain place and bring slides, 35 millimeter slides of, of my college work. And so he did, and I, I ran and got them from him and ran back, and, uh, and I got to show it to the people, and I became an illustrator there at Fort Knox for about a year, and then I went and got married. I thought I was going to stay there for my whole tour. I was just a two-year guy. So. And then after I got married, they sent me to Germany. And uh, so I was the combat engineer unit in Germany, but that was great. I wasn't doing any combat. So, so um, uh, I eventually got my new wife, my bride, my, you know, which we've been married long. She came to Germany. And we, she spent a solid year there. I was, I was in Germany a little over a year, but uh, that was neat. I got to see Europe and see castles and all this kind of stuff, take pictures. And it was a good experience. And then when I got out, um, the the place where I worked at Fort Knox wanted me back, and oh, so wow. so I so when I got out of the army, civil service, I went back to the place I worked, and they hired me, you know, civil service, and I and I would work there for the next eight or nine years, eight years maybe. I was just nine whenever I I left them, and, and they were grooming me to be the the main man in charge there. Uh, which was, I think, a GS-11 job at that time. And so I worked there for about eight or nine years as an illustrator. And um, so I would come home at night and, and paint and do paintings for myself. It was fantasy work. And I eventually started getting a few little things published here and there. And and, um, and then we hired a new guy at work. And he, uh, every lunch... Um, and this guy looked just like Charles Manson, man. <laughs> he was young, like <laughs> when Charles Manson was young. Okay, he had long hair, he had this little scraggly beard, and, and he was a little weird. And um, and every lunch period, I mean, at noon, there'd be some kids come in, like high school kids, and they'd get around his desk and they was doing something. We didn't know what they were doing, playing a game or something. And, uh, and so we teach him like this Manson and his little family, you know. <laughs> and then he said he was playing Dungeons and Dragons. We said, oh, really? So we'd heard of it. This is like in 78, I guess, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so he bugged us about a year to play D&D with him, you know. Because uh-huh. there was about, I guess, the shop had about 11 or 12 illustrators, and we were all fairly young. And... um I was probably one of the older ones, I guess, and I was about 28 then, you know, and uh, 29, somewhere around there. And so finally, we all got together and played D and D with him one time. It took one whole lunch period just to try to, or it took two of them, two days to get our characters, you know. Do you remember uh, what your first one was? Yeah, I was a dwarf fighter. <laughs> I always played a dwarf fighter. Because <laughs> I was short. <laughs> yeah, I was short, stocky, and I always, well, at that time I wasn't stocky. I was short and, uh, and slim, but um, but I guess I was sort of a scrapper. I mean, short, I just played a dwarf fighter. Well, when we he, we finally got everything rolled up and started on our adventure, and uh, the first thing I did was try to kill a thief, you know, and um, and he used to, the, Vernon was a DM master. He was the guy running it. And he says, no, no, you, you're supposed to work together to, to to solve the problems. You don't fight among yourselves, you know. We didn't know. We were trying to kill each other at first. <laughs> and finally we, after, but I didn't trust a thief. And I never did trust thieves in, in the games. Usually in most games I end up trying to kill a thief because they were usually stealing <laughs> from us. And uh, so, um. Uh, but anyway, we finally got the gist of the game, and we we ran a game for a while, and we loved it. I mean, I thought it was the neatest game in the world. And so the guy Vernon, he was trying to, you know, that was he was playing with the old old books. You know, the the art was what Archer was was pretty bad, and uh, uh, the old first edition stuff. And and um, so he was going to send in a portfolio to see if he could get work from them. I'm like, well. They sort of, I said, there's a lot of good illustrators out there in the world. I said, they must like that primitive look because, you know, they're pretty popular. And I, they're publishing, and he thinks so. And so, but Bernie did more of a cartoony type work. And so, mm-hmm. the day he was sending his portfolio, and he said, well, you've got some stuff over there. He said, why don't I send some samples of your stuff in just to, 
And um, he said, I'll just add like a little note. Say, this is a friend that works with me, and then even Larry O'Morn, this is his work. I said, I don't care, okay. <laughs> so I did. And then about a week or two, about a couple of weeks later, they called me and uh, wanted me to do a freelance job for them. Well, that really wow. pissed my off because <laughs> they didn't call him, you know. Oh, and well. he introduced me to D&D and everything else. I felt bad, but it's like, well, oh. you know. But my work was more realistic. His was more... His stuff, and this is before anime. I mean, he'd never seen the anime, but his yeah. stuff looked like anime. Wow. Uh, and um, and uh, so that wasn't, well, it wasn't even really known then. Uh, I don't guess mm-hmm. not. This is like 78 or 9, you know. Yeah. And uh, or it's probably 79 or 80. This might be 80 by now. Because it took him about a year or two to finally convince us to play the game. And um, so <laughs> I did a freelance piece. Of course, Vernon hated me after that, you know. <laughs> I lost a friend. But, you know, 30 years later, you know, we, we um, 20-some years later, we, we met again, and everything was fine, so. <laughs> well, that's good. See, time heals all wounds. Yeah, it healed no. all wounds. Wounds all you get, heals. You get the yeah. TSR hobbies, and, um, you know, I guess uh, you'll you eventually get a full time gig with them in their art department, right? Yeah, they. Uh, after I did the freelance piece, they called me and wanted me to go to work for them. Well, I had about eight years in it for Knox. I was GS nine. Uh, they were grooming me to be the top man, and and uh, and I didn't really want to leave. I said, "Well, why don't you just let me work for you freelance?" You know, and I mm-hmm. said, I, "I've got time. I can do it on the side." And then they sent, at that time, Kevin Bloom was the president of the company. The, the two Bloom brothers and Gary Gax would take turns being president. And uh, it was um, Kevin's turn to be president. So he flew down here to Kentucky. I picked him to the airport. And he came to my house and set my table and said, look, we'll, um, we'll hire you. And um, give me an amount, which blew my mind, you know, at that time. He was talking about, <laughs> you know. Well, he's going to hire me at $40,000. And I was at GS9 making about 20000 And I thought I was doing good, you know. This is in 78, so that's like unbelievable money, you know, to me. And, and he said, that he said, I said, well, my wife works. And he asked how much she made. And he said, well, we'll double her salary. So he did that. I'm like, wow. So I said, well, I just bought a new house. He said, well, we'll buy it and sell it for you. I said, wow. <laughs> so, I said, well, I said, well, I guess you just bought an artist. You know? <laughs> it's like, pinch yourself. You must be dreaming, right? So. Yeah. And so and he promised me within a few years at TSI, I'll be making over 50000 a year. Well, that's like telling me now, I'd be, you know, or telling somebody that's making 35000 a year or 40000 a year, they'll be making 200000 you know. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's just, it was an unbelievable kind of money when he said, I promise you in a few years you're making fifty thousand dollars a year. I'm like, Oh my God, you might as well said a half million dollars, that's what it sounds like. <laughs> I can't believe that. And and sure enough, um and T S R never did pay me a lot of money on salary, but I had the opportunity to freelance for them too. You can pick up money on the side. So with that and everything else, uh, yeah, within that two or three years I was making over fifty, sixty, seventy <clears throat> you know, thousand a year, so I was doing really good. And um but yeah, they moved me up there and went to work, and and uh, it was fun. I really enjoyed it. It was great. I mean, your style really came to define a lot about TSR back then. So, it's uh, they did the right thing. <laughs> well, I guess what it was, um, I had painted enough that I did have a style. I, mean, I took art seriously, of course, and and, um, and and I mean, I was still pushing really hard to learn to paint better, you know. Mm-hmm. Actually, when I first started working at TSR, I actually had to back up as far as I painted a little bit worse because the deadlines, until then, I never really painted under a deadline, you know. I do my own thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they'd, they'd give you a deadline, so I had to push it, so I had to cut corners. And a lot of my early art looked more like colored drawings, you know. Um mm-hmm. I, had a, I was really, uh, my talent really lay more in, in my ability to draw. I could draw easily and well. Mm-hmm. Color came hard for me, so my drawings, my, my paintings were like heavy drawing and and not too good in color. 
but I did have a style, and um, that's probably the first one that had been published before that uh, that started working there, you know. And um, and I was the type of person, I guess, from the way I'd grown up, my work ethic was like, I'm working for you, you tell me when you want it done, I'll deliver it, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's how most of the artists were at TSR, too, that... that you know, it wasn't long until we hired Jeff Easley. I knew him before he went to work there. We had met about, we had met about in about '78 or '79. He just mm-hmm. got out of college, and uh, we went to a first convention together in Louisville, and, uh, and at a fancy convention. And we we're like, "Wow, this, this is pretty weird, but it was neat," you know. And I sold some original art and loved it, you know. And uh, so Jeff went to New York to try to make it there and he was up there pretty much starving with his family and get a wife and a little boy and and uh so he called me up he said after i got on at tsr he said Gee, you you work for that company at game company and i said yep and he said well how are they treating me i said they're treating me great <laughs> he said do you think they'd hire me i said shoot yeah they would <laughs> i said you just send us sample I, I, I said now listen they tell you how much money money you want tell me you want uh Let's see. No, they started me out at uh, maybe just no, they started me out at forty thousand. I told him forty thousand. I told what it was. I told him what my salary was. I said, "Ask for that amount of money." <laughs> said, oh my God, I can't ask for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they got plenty of money. They'll pay you for that. And so, so they flew him down to Lake Geneva to for an interview. You know. Yeah. And uh, they talked to him and everything. I wasn't involved, and I might have to visit him a minute and. So he goes back to New York, and after he's gone, uh, our art uh, head of the art department, he came talk to me. He said, uh, we really like his art. We're wanting to hire him. I said, well, good. I said, he's a good guy. And he said, well, you know, we asked him what he wanted, what kind of salary he wanted. He said, uh, 7000 I think it was, or 8000 <laughs> <laughs> He said, undersold well. himself. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, <laughs> I said, well, Damn him! <laughs> I said I told him to ask whatever my salary was then. I think it was forty thousand. I said I told him to ask what I made. He said, "Well, he said we we counter offer was seventeen thousand. He agreed. <laughs> Way undersold you got himself. Got negotiations all backwards. <laughs> and, and then he said, "Well, what we'll do is probably we're going to raise him up to your salary once he gets here after about three months. Yeah, he does. So, so he did. He." Within three months, he was making one made. Oh. So he was happy as as he could be, you know. What was so it, it turned out it, pretty good. <laughs> what was it physically like in there, you know, in the offices? What, did you guys have one big room you'd work well, in? Well, we, we always worked together. We we stayed in one big room. And now, at, at first, we were in the old hotel, downtown Lake Geneva. It, was, it used to be a hotel. And it was converted into a TSR technology made a business there. And downstairs, they had the, the, a big hobby store on the ground yeah, floor. Yeah, it was the dungeon uh, hobby shop, right? Yeah, yeah. And so we worked above it, and that was in 80, and maybe early 81. And, um, yeah, it was 80 and 81. I think it went to the summer of 81 before we moved into the new building, uh, which must have been in late 81 or 82. But... Um, but we were scattered. We was all crammed in about two rooms. All the artists were, but they were all connected right there. And then when we new building, we wanted to be in the same room. We all wanted to be together. So, so in a, in a year, within a year, there was they had hired. Um, well, of course, there was Jeff, and there was they hired Clyde Cowell. Then they hired um, uh, Keith Parkinson about two or three years later, a couple of years later. And we all always we all worked in one room, and then Dave LaForest, Diesel, he was their map mm-hmm. maker. He worked in the same room, and Jeff Butler came aboard. He was our black and white guy, and he he worked in the same. And Tim Coonan worked for us for a while, but we always stayed in one big room. And um, well, it sounds like first the Marvel the building, they had. <laughs> Excuse me. It almost sounded like the Marvel bullpen how they had their setup. Yeah, well, we liked it because we could bounce ideas off each other, and we were all still learning stuff and learning, um, um, learning how to paint. We were all pretty young, and uh, we helped each other out. And uh, somebody discovered some new technique or something, we'd share it with other people. And or if you had a problem, we'd help each other out. So we got along real well. We were like a big family. We really enjoyed it. There wasn't yeah. any any problem. Our personalities got along okay. Yeah, we had uh, Margaret Weiss on the show a while back, and she told us some stories about 
having you guys right down the hall that yeah. she'd be sitting in there in her cubicle. And I guess at one point she told the story about, uh, uh, some of the bosses came down in and you guys were having a water gun fight, water or pistol fight. Oh no, it was actually a rubber band fight. Oh <laughs> yeah. We, what happened is one day we're all sitting there painting away just like nice guys. And, and the supply people, they come and give us all this huge box of every kind of rubber band you could think of, right? Everybody got a box of rubber bands. Oh, boy. <laughs> and so, you know, we looked at each other, and what happened next was a rubber band fight, you know? So we would, there's lots of times about four in the afternoon, we would, you'd be sitting there painting, all of a sudden, bam, somebody hit you with a rubber band. And what they'd aim for is aim for your palette. You know, you hit the palette and you sling paint. <laughs> or you hit aim for the painting, you know, if you could mess the painting <laughs> It'd piss you off, you know. <clears throat> and, uh, then soon a big rubber band war would pursue, you know, we would be shooting rubber bands at each other and, and crawling across the floor and hiding out behind stuff. And I kept a lot of my brushes in big coffee can. If they could hit the top of one of those brushes and turn the coffee can over, all my brushes would fall out. <laughs> or you try to bounce Jeez. a rubber band across your palate, like I said, you know. And, and um, Keith had a big old light above his desk and he had about, I'd say, 100 miniatures up there. You'd aim for his miniatures, you know. <laughs> <laughs> if you got a good hit, you'd knock about ten or twelve off, and he'd fall. He'd just painting and fall on his palette. He would. Fall, you know? Oh my gosh! So I mean, we would have these knockdown dragouts. So one time we was having one of these big wars. We was just shooting all over the place, and at the end of the one side of our room had big glass windows, which went into the what's it called pre-press. The girls did the typesetting for the books, and. um and, we, and of course, those gals, we knew them. Well, my wife worked in there, too. So, and uh, every once in a while, you'd look in, wave at them or something. But we used to have this big road band fight. And then somebody said, get back to your desk, get back to your desk. <laughs> and so he said, why? And he said, well, Lorraine, Lorraine. And I had to look oh. up, and there she stood looking through the window at us. And she had this Japanese tourist bunch, business people, <laughs> all looking at us. And so we... We couldn't stop immediately. We just had to wind down and sort of work our way back to the desk and start working again. <laughs> oh, Lord. She eventually brought a man a few minutes later, about 30 minutes later, walked him around and they met us. We tried to stay cool, you know. <laughs> this sounds like about the time when uh, one of your major creations kind of made its uh, way into Dragon Magazine, uh, Snarf Quest. Now, yeah. I was wondering how did, how did Snarf Quest start? How did how did, where did that okay where did that well, inspiration the, come from? Well, when I worked at Fort Knox, uh, a friend of mine worked there, a really good artist, and I still keep in touch with him today. He still does really some creative stuff. We talked about having the own world of little critters and stuff, you know. And he had a world. It was a valley that had these little like you know animals that could talk and stuff and. He had some neat ideas. His, his stuff, his ink work was very dark. And uh, and so, but when I created my little world, I was like, it was always funny. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, I guess the forerunner of Snarf is, remember when I told you that TSR called me the first time after Vernon sent the portfolios in? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, they gave me a freelance job as a calendar cover for 19... 79 or 80 or something like that calendar cover I don't know and I, I did the did the piece and they didn't pay me and they said they pay within 30 days what was 30 days 60 days 90 days and I'm like well you know they should pay me by now and so I didn't want to call them up and and fuss um, because I'd like to get more work from them this is before they asked me to work for them mm-hmm um, so I, what I did is I illustrated a letter, um, and I had this creature that looked very much like Snarf, you know. Uh-huh. I think he looked just like Snarf, I don't think he has long ears, but I think he has a long snout and stuff. But I illustrated a letter, uh, basically, as like a little strip, like a two-page strip or something like that, basically telling them they hadn't paid me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and at the end of the strip, the scene was the uh, ink version of the scene I'd painted for them, you know. Is that the scene with the dragon? It was a dragon coming out of a cave. It was a black and white. Yes. 
I do remember that. It was an early Dragon magazine. Yes, yeah. yes, I do. I have that. Well, that was that, uh, the, that was like the first time I'd really drawn Snar, if you want to say. And so then about, it wasn't but a few months after that, after I got hired there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd worked there. This was still in 81, I guess, because I got hired in the summer of 81. So this is like in the, maybe it's in the spring of 82. I don't know, maybe. But someone in there, um, Kim Ohan, who was the editor of Dragon Magazine, said, no, we're going to start a comic strip, and we're going to take uh, uh, samples of people's work from all over the world, whoever wants to do it. And he said, if we, if we, somebody turns in something we like, we're going to run you know, two or three pages a, a month. And I said, well, could I apply for that, too? He said, yeah, he said, for anybody. You'd be doing freelance. You wouldn't be doing it on company time. I said, well, I understand that. He said, yeah. I said, well, what do you need? He said, well, do about three to five pages just so you can get the feel of what you're wanting to do. So I did the first five pages of Snarf and uh, and sent it in. I turned it in. I don't know how many people turned in stuff, but uh, I turned mine in. And, and about a month later, I guess, they come to me and say, we like we like yours the best. Said, uh, do you think you can do much with it? I said, oh, sure. I said, that's like funny stuff from now on. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they said, well, do, do another three pages and see what you do. And so, whatever. Anyway, so that started, and, uh, and, and, and well, that's how I got started. And I've, I've continued to do it up until about the year I left. And, and uh, I got so busy, I couldn't really do it. Uh, oh, I was freelancing the last part. And so my schedule, freelance schedule was so full that I couldn't really do snark. And then I was being paid 300 a month for it. And uh, which back then was decent money. Nowadays, you couldn't get paid three hundred dollars a month for any in any kind of magazine. Do a strip artist. I mean, game related magazine. Yeah. Uh, actually, you got more money in the eighties for doing covers and stuff than you do now for fantasy stuff. Yeah, it's interesting uh, how how the whole kind of world has changed for artists in the game world. I can't imagine <clears throat> a company having a bullpen with you know real paintings hanging on the wall and yeah. things like that. Well, that was before computer art, and also um, the fantasy world was, uh, the the publishers of fantasy was pretty small. Now it's because it's exploded and there's so much that, uh, of course, um, it's flooded, and so the prices go down. I mean, used to any magazine would pay you a couple of grand for a cover. Now a lot of magazines are $800,000 for a cover, you know. Do you think the... Um, uh... I mean, do you think the kind of tools that people have now for their art has changed the, the styles as well? Oh yeah. oh, yeah. I mean, computers have done wonders for the... It's changed everything. And, and uh, um, your oil painters, the people that still paint with oils, there's a new breed coming up, and they paint like old masters, like Donato Giancola and that bunch, you know. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and uh, the, 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 but there are few. Uh, there's not as many painters. Uh, but he's he's one of the I'd say head of this young elite bunch. I think they're really great painters. You know. Can, can you but, can you give give me his name again? I want to make sure that everybody knows who we're talking okay. about. Donato Chincoa. Okay. And he's got a website. So, but he does really great work. And he got his start doing magic cards. But he was. He paints like a master, like an old master. And, yeah, see, uh, now that's the funny thing. There are, there was some good work with the magic cards and stuff, but now yeah. we were just noticing this because I'm over with some friends of mine today playing this game Rogue Trader, which is from yeah. the Games Workshop. And we're looking yeah. at the book and, and saying how, you know, all these things that are coming out right now, especially from Games Workshop and from uh, Wizards and stuff, it yeah. looks like the artwork all came from the exact same person. Like, it, it doesn't have any of that old oil feel well yeah um i think and here's i got my own little philosophy about it uh and first of all i don't have a jihad against computer okay some artists do right. <laughs> and uh i got a good friend that's just he's got his own personal jihad against uh computer art and i won't mention his name but <laughs> but i've told him before i said you know it's here to stay you know it's because yeah. it's a cheaper way of producing the art and it's a cheaper way for the publishers, everything, you know, it's just, it saves time and you can do, I mean, right now with the prices in fantasy that you get for cover work, 
for like a regular book cover or something. It hasn't gone up since the 80s, okay? If yeah. anything, some places it's gone down. So back then I could do, let's say, three paintings a month, two to three paintings a month, and I get between 500 to $3,500 a painting. You're making good money. Okay, nowadays with the prices uh, and living expenses and stuff, if you're trying to have a family and live a little bit, of course, I work myself to death, literally. I worked too much back then. You know, two paintings a month is still working hard. Sometimes I do three. And they're quality paintings, so that means I was working way too many hours mm -hmm. to stay healthy. So I had a stroke at 40, and I've had some heart attacks since. So I've paid for it, you know. But... um, um but now, if a, as an oil painter, if you're not one of the elites that's getting a lot of money for your oil paintings, um, you couldn't really make it. If you did two paintings a month and was only paid 800 or or $1,000 a painting, that wouldn't, you know, you couldn't survive. You couldn't support a family. Whereas I could back then. So with computer art, you can do a lot more work. You know, you can crank out more pieces, even if, even if it's not top dollar, uh, you can just you just produce faster, so you can you can survive. You can make right. a living and and then pay your insurance and take care of your family. You know, but it's hard, uh, especially in the fantasy world. Unless, like I said, you're you're part of just a very few people that's that's known or has made it. Um, for young artists to make a living at it, it is rough. It's very rough. Of course. So the computer is here to stay. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. it does maybe create. There are some new opportunities for artists, yeah. whether it's in the world of video games or mm -hmm. uh, film. Uh, I do want to just kind of jump in with a question that one of our uh, we we asked some of our listeners if there's anything sure. they wanted to touch yeah. on, and one of them said, uh, "He said, could you please ask him? Ask Larry. He must know how John Howe and Alan Lee went from illustration to working on the Lord of the Rings movies." So, um, and he's asking, you know, what what do you think about? Uh, making the move into film type of work and the opportunities for other young artists for that? Well, um, if you can usually, from the best I know, I've, I've sort of always avoided, uh, I mean, I've never made a conscious effort to get involved with Hollywood at all because... Uh, so anything to do with what you saw Gary go through? Oh, well, it's just uh, a lot of people have gotten burnt and stuff so I knew and... Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, if you if you did something a one time thing and got out of it or something, that's okay. But to get in, involved too much and start depending on them, it's a high, it's, you're in a high risk business to begin with. You're just rolling the dice even more. Um, Hollywood can be tough and cruel. So I just didn't want. To, I was busy and I had plenty of work, so I never did try it. What people I know that did get involved with Hollywood stuff was a uh, uh, um, director or somebody. Uh, or producer, uh, whoever be in charge of the visualization of the movie, okay, mm -hmm. would maybe know an artist that liked their work and, and, and call them up or something and say, would you like to do this? Once they got enough funding, they could knew that the, that might the, the movie might come true, you know, might be made, so they would contact an artist. And so you took like Ali, some of these guys, if they did, you know, they might have stopped and, and did so much work and got paid for it, and that's great, and then they go back doing their thing. That's a good way to do it. I was just always leery of of, um, of um, trying to. I'm not an artist that went to Hollywood and and tried to make it there with their art and movie stuff. And some of them has survived, and some of them went totally busted and had to come home. You know, I mean, it's it's risky. Yeah. I just I told my wife over twenty some years ago. I said, you know, I said let's pretend that all this fantasy art is like the movies. Okay. I said I don't want to be a shooting star. I, said, I want to be a character actor. I said, because these old character actors, even if you don't know their names, they're still acting at 80 years old, you know. They're in it for the whole lifetime. And uh, and you know what I'm talking about. You'll see these yeah. familiar faces. You might sure. not know their names, but they've been in every movie just about you've ever seen. You know? mm -hmm. I said, those guys are still working. That's what's important. Some of these really hot shots, once they lose their looks or their things fade, it's Sometimes they're they they're they're real popular and they're gone, you know. Or they gotta keep making their comeback, you know. Do what? Yeah. That's an interesting philosophy yeah. to have about And so that. my goal was to be a character actor and it sort of worked for me. I just stayed busy and kept working and done a little bit of everything and and so even today when I've 
got one foot out of publishing. I've still done work for publishers, you know, a little bit. And uh, I think well, it's kind of good blood. It's kind of ironic for you to say because I'd say that out of the large number of illustrators that there were at that heyday, yours is, you're one of the names that has kind of become uh, synonymous with the genre, and, and you've actually yeah. ended up standing out. Well, I've been lucky, put it that way. And uh, I think what it is is, I know when I was young, your whole goal was to get that snowball going, to get known and get it out there, and you're pushing and you're doing every kind of job you can think of just to get known, get visible. Because of visibility is job security, you know. That's all you're wanting is job security. You got a wife and two kids and a house and cars and all this and insurance and everything else. So, my God, the only way I knew how to make a living was paint and draw. So, so I was pushing hard and working. You know, I'd work 90 hours a week for years and years, and you had no life. You just worked so that hopefully enough people would see your work and like it to where You'd have job security, you know, or if you keep doing it, that's, like I said, you only had to, I only had one way to make a living, and that was it. I always tell people if it's not doing pennies or something, uh, I might as well be a Walmart reader, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now, I wouldn't be very you, good at that, I would. <laughs> have you ended up? Kind of, Go ahead, oh, I'm sorry. sorry. Well, it's like, like when you're talking, like, you, you just kind of wanted to be, like, the character actor of, 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 of fantasy like, art, art, yeah. But you did. In a way, you have keeping in your way, kind of keeping kind of low, not making a you know, making a big fuss about yourself, but just you know being doing you know doing the work and doing what's expected. Yeah. But you know, through that, you helped define one of those things that came out of TSR Hobby was was the Dragonlance series. Yeah. Uh, now, how did that happen? How did you? Well, how did they approach yeah. you and say, you know what, Larry? We want you to do this. We want you to define the look of this whole world. Well, um, the first year I worked at TSR, I was in I was in the fall of and uh, I started in the fall of eighty uh, one, and it was probably during that winter of, of eighty one, eighty uh, and eighty two that um, Harold Johnson, he was the head of the the writers, editors, whatever, game designers. Uh, he was the, the boss of that department. And they hired a new guy, Tracy Hickman. He came in a month or two after I came in. They hired him as a game designer. Well, Tracy had told Harold about this big idea he had about this big epic novel and, and like a trilogy, and you make games from it and books from it. And Harold liked that idea, and, and he talked about it, well... He saw the word come down like, if you want to develop this, you got to develop on your own time. Because basically, I'm not saying anything bad about Gary, but, but the way it operated was, at that time, most everything came from Gary. Right. Um, if it was all in the world of Greyhawks and had AD&D attached to it, or I think it was, if it was that way, then he also got a personal royalty, too, besides his shares of the company and everything. So he was making extra money. And... um so basically, everything had to be done within his world. Mm -hmm. So what Tracy was suggesting was creating a whole new world, and uh, from the creative department of TSR, not from Gary. Of course, they'd be using AD&D rules, mm -hmm. and uh, so so it was it was looked at as as an uphill battle. So Harold came to me. He said, "Well, do you work on some of this on your own time?" I said, "Well, what kind of project is it?" He said, "Well, we'll meet at your house and tell you." So. <laughs> uh, I had a studio in the basement of my house. That's where I worked all the time. So when I quit, when when it's time to go home at TSR, I'd go home, eat, and then go downstairs in my studio, and I would paint till one or two in the morning. That's, that was just my life. And uh, so they came over one night down the basement, and uh, and basically Harold and uh, and Tracy Tracy told me the whole big epic story of Dragonlance, which was basically the first three novels. That was all it was intended to be to begin with, was the first three books, Chronicles. And uh, I said, man, I like it. You know, it sounds neat. And they said, well, would you do us? We've got to sell this idea to the board of directors. And uh, uh, and said, if, if they like it and vote for it, you're out, vote Gary on it, uh, then um, uh, we'll be able to do it. And, and it's, it's a fun project. So uh, I did some little quick art pieces for them to show as they 
for their presentation. So I was involved early on, and I went to the presentation, and Tracy and Harold did a great job of selling it, and I, I did what I could. And and Gary even liked the idea after it was all said and done. He thought, that's a pretty good idea. So we got to go ahead, you know. Wow. And, um, so when they said do it, I sort of inherited the job as art director. Um, and during that time, while this was going on, we we didn't hard. Um, and when they told me the story at my house, Jeff Easley hadn't been hired, I don't think. If he had, he'd only been there about a month or two. Um, Clyde hadn't been hired yet. Uh, Keith hadn't been hired yet. Uh, none of those guys had been hired yet. <clears throat> so I just sort of inherited the art directorship of it, you know. And, um, and I really liked it. I was fired up about it. And so I had to fight lots of times to help it keep a look. Uh, you know, this was a lot of, more of a Celtic design on the early stuff and everything. And that was me because when they was, they got to getting groups and teams together to design this and that, and some of it sucked so bad that, <laughs> that uh, I just sort of took it over and said, we'll go with the Celtic theme. And I worked with Jim Rosloff. He was the head of the art department then. And, and I, he's the one that did the big Dragonlance logo. I, I told him, I said, we want it. So the Celtic design, we'll run a big lance to it. And I designed the Dragonlance. And I said, those side borders were on the first calendar with the dragons and the sort of Celtic design. Um, I can't remember if I designed that or he designed that, but I, I sketched some stuff out because the first uh, designs for the Dragonlance look would look like something like a, what I call a Farm Bureau calendar. It just, <laughs> <don't know. laughs> it just something looked like you'd cut squares out and just paste them down on nothing. There was no design, no anything. It, it had a 60s look about it. No, I didn't even have that because 60s had a look. I don't know what it It looked like stale bread, you know. I said, this has got to have a flavor of something, a common something. So I thought it was Celtic. You know, I love the Celtic designs, and it wasn't seen very much at that time. And um, so I sort of got that look. And, and I tried to make people, you know, I swear did a character for the first time. Um, if you painted, like, um, Anna with me, I painted some of the characters for the first time. And I said, so... What do we do? You consult with Margaret and Tracy, and then you paint the character. And then from that point on, we'll all try to look at it and paint them the same way so we have a consistent look. And so some of the artists really cooperated well doing that, and some of them not so well. But but we um, we managed to keep a basic look to it. I don't say we did it, but we did. I know sometimes it was a hard fight. There's a couple of times TSR was going to kill the whole Dragonlance project, and we had wow. to fight for it. To, I know Tracy really fought hard to keep him from killing it a couple of times. Was this uh, later on when Lorraine was in charge, or when? No, was this is this is when it was first getting off the ground. I, I know the first novel went out there. Well, it didn't sell a Z in the first week, you know, and for the first month or so, like they mm-hmm. anticipated. At that time, the company was so everything they did sold up a lot. Okay, and they were actually spoiled. They everything they produced, everybody bought it. Well, doing a novel was new. They hadn't done any novels yet. So when the novel didn't sell a million copies in a week <laughs> or yeah. something, you know, whatever their, the numbers they expected, they decided to kill it. Well, well, General Tracy really was one that said, give it a chance. And when the modules first came out, Dragonlance modules, people didn't know what it was, so they didn't sell as, as quick. So give it, just please give it another month or something. Just, you know, just beg for time. You know, you've already produced a product. Let it set. Don't kill it yet. And about the time we talked about letting it go and, you know, seeing what it would do, give it some time, then all of a sudden, bam, it caught on and started selling. Wow. Okay. And then the company turned right around and won't produce everything Dragonlance. <laughs> and uh, you had a painting coming out, a Dragonlance painting coming on your schedule, or the day you're supposed to start on it, because the sales department, the marketing department had your schedule. They'd be up there and they want it the next day. And like, I can't do this painting in a day. I mean, you're talking about our number one selling product here, and you want us to do a painting in a day, you know? Mm-hmm. But they they knew if they could, because they got a cover, they could get the band sales. So they wanted the cover to be done, and you had to fight them tooth and nail. Um, I know some of the Dragonlance covers, uh, the the legends and stuff. Uh, Chronicles, I got plenty of time. Legends, the first one was okay. The second one in Legends. I had two or three days to do it in the third one legend, wow. you know, two or three days. They're just pushing you, pushing you, pushing you. So you'd, 
you take as much time as you could, you know. And uh, that was the bad thing. After it caught on, then it was always forcing to get to cover stuff. So was and the only time you get to a decent painting is for the... That's why we did the calendars, because that way there wasn't pressure for us in the calendars. Mm. They could do better paintings in the calendars. But the book covers, it was pressing so hard. And I was doing the majority of them. And uh, it was crazy. I just... It was embarrassing almost, knowing that these covers were very, very important and they'd give you two or three days to do them in. They tried to. I would take maybe four days to do them in, you know. Right. And, uh, and whereas so, you needed two weeks to do the painting. So was there much difference in the way things worked at TSR between uh, before and after Lorraine got there? Did it, did it change the way things went like that at all? It was slowly changing because uh, the management was in a fight for about... There was a fight going on for about four years, I guess. The last four years that I worked there. Uh, four or five years, something like that. Four years, I would say. On who's going to run the company, if the company was going to go under, or is uh, doing so many stupid things. And it was depressing if you thought about the upper echelon. Uh, as far as the people working there, it was great. I mean, the creative people, it was, your creativity was so thick you could cut it with a knife. Everybody loved working there. And uh, we could have done so much more if it wasn't for the constant battles going on because it was a cash cow and they were fighting over it, okay? Mm -hmm. And the control and destiny of it, you know, people saw different things. And we just wanted the companies to survive because we were consumers of its products as creative people. We cons So we knew what we were doing because it's what we liked. We played yeah. D&D. &D. We, we, we were consumers. Yeah, you wanted and of to course, management as much as anybody else. Yeah. And so... Um, it just got worse and worse, and it was going farther into debt, producing more games, and it was going to kill fantasy at one time and go into mass market board games. I mean, you name it. They did the stupidest things in the world. And uh, they wouldn't, they didn't like me at the company meetings because I would always get involved. <laughs> <laughs> Did you basically speak your own mind, huh? Yeah, I did. And uh, you know that feeling when, when the art department say, okay, this is what we're going to tell them, you know. Okay, okay. Okay, you tell them. I said, okay, but y'all be behind me, you know. And <laughs> so at the company meeting, I would I would speak up the feeling of the art department and look around, and they all disappear just about. Well, some of them stood behind <laughs> you, you know. But So you're there sort of holding the bag and looking like you're the bad guy. But I got the way I didn't care because we were really concerned about the welfare of the company and the products we, we put out. So I thought, you know, the most they can do is fire me. Uh, I mean, when I was in the Army, they could, uh, you didn't get fired in the Army. You could get put in a brig or take your money away and do bad right. time. Uh, you know, and what kind of civil service was about as bad as almost like the military. And, and um, but when I was, I was out here working in the public. So it's like, they can't do nothing to me. You just fire me. So what? You know? Yeah, right. And so I wasn't really afraid. I mean, there was so many people working that was just terrorized of Gary and, and everything, just just afraid of him, and like he's just a dude, you know. I mean, <laughs> I've been working around generals and stuff, and those guys had real power, you know. Right. And you so, think uh, you think it was kind of like TSR ended up being a victim of their own success? Yeah, and in a way they were, and they uh, spent a lot of money. Uh, a lot of money was wasted. And then the upper management decided, well, anybody can make games. So you had CEOs making games. Okay, designers, oh, board games and stuff, which sold nothing. And they did some of the stupidest stuff. And all the time we were sitting there like, we're going down tubes, dude. You're, all making, you're losing money, you know. And we had, the art department, we had sort of like spies in every department. We knew what was going on. And we even had people in shipping and the orders. We knew how many orders were being sold nation uh, worldwide per month, you know. Mm-hmm. And some of these new products that they designed that was set, we'd find out that, you know, worldwide we sold 35 copies, you know. Oh, like, well, that shows you how, you know. And they'd put $300,000 going outside of TSR. There was lots of times they used big advertising companies in Chicago to design board games and paid them hundreds of thousands of dollars when it could have been done in-house, but they went out of house to do it. And then which, of course, cost us plenty of money, and then marketed them worldwide and sold, you know, 12 copies or something, you know. Just lost some money. And it's like, look, we, we control the fantasy market. Why don't we do more fantasy products? We were all eager. We all had ideas, but we wouldn't do it.
What do you think it would take for another group of people to do something like like what TSR did in the beginning when things were going well? Well, you've got to have some kind of great game. Well, it's like wizards end up with magic together, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you've got to have a really good game uh, of some type, and then you hire really good creative people and listen to your creative people. If you're producing a game that's really popular and your creative people are consumers of that to begin with, okay, then they wouldn't know what the people want. Uh, your target audience, they would know because, but, but it seems like a lot of these companies don't do that. They listen to the bean counters. Yeah. You know, the bean counters are looking at profit margin. And I know you gotta make, you gotta make money or you can't exist. But it seemed like, and I've talked to other companies this way and even some toy companies. It's like, the bean counters always say, well, you know, we know what we, what we need to make and we know what needs to make money. Like, a mass market board game makes a whole lot of money. But yeah, you talked to Hasbro or Milton Bradley back then and, and they would you know they'd throw twenty games on a wall and one hopefully one would stick, you know. Whereas T S I would do a board game and they figured it was gonna stick, you know. Right. But it you know, you can't waste your money that way. If you if you're king in one in one industry, like we we were king in the hobby industry Go with what you're strong at. Keep being a bigger king, okay? Right. But they seem not to do that. It was all about money and more money here, more money. And they wasted money and blew money and threw money away to find the company just was so far in debt that they had to sell it. So you still a gamer today? Are you still a gamer today? I try to game. I, can't, I don't have time to play role-playing games anymore. And What do you um, like? Well, right now, at my age, when the kids come in to visit, are we... Or maybe some in-laws get together. We'll play um, just pretty quick little little board games. There's well, this little game we call, uh, I think it's named Mexican Train or something. Mm-hmm. We play that. A few card games. But uh, I don't get to, let's see, some of the, like the Milton Bradley games that come out or whatever, you know. Yeah. Board games. Are you, <clears> uh, is, there, is there anything you like out of what anybody's doing, whether it's the indie publishers or the games workshop or wizards or anybody else i mean whether you play it or not well i think there's some good games well i did a cover for a board game called defenders uh-huh. um and uh and then last year they, they introduced origins and um and uh, i got to play it for the first time and it was a fun game you know and i'm like wow this is this is neat but i thought i'll probably never get to play it because the people at my age the people that the, the like I said, family that gets together, they don't really have time. They're too busy talking and visiting, and you need to play a light game. You can't really get into a good strategy game, Harley, you know, yeah. when you're yeah. you're talking about everything else but the game. And But I always love games, and and um, and I can't keep up with them anymore. There's so many, you know, I depend on other people to tell me what's going on more than anything. If I'm doing well, a cover it. of something, go ahead. Well, I I got one 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 more question for you sure. before we wrap up. Is you know, being a successful artist in this uh, fantasy artist in this uh, industry? Uh, what are maybe just one or two things? Because we have some listeners that are maybe you know young aspiring artists themselves. Um, what are some you know little nuggets of of wisdom that you could pass on to maybe some aspiring artists out there to help them get their start today? What are some things that they could do? Okay. I'd say the first thing is, did you decide to be an artist or did art choose you? Or did you choose art or did it choose you? I know what's the people I've known that's been fairly successful with art. They were obsessed with art. Basically, art chose them. If you're 25 years old and said, oh, I think I'll be an artist, you're probably not going to be a very good artist. <laughs> um, it's basically a calling, then. It's like a calling, almost, because it takes a lot of dedication, a lot of um, uh, sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And if you're not willing to do that, you're never going to do it. But if you're obsessed with it, you'll do it. Mm-hmm. So if you've got that kind of desire, um, then give it, give art your, give it your all, and be your own worst critic, and always keep trying to improve. Um, I think that there'll always be. Uh, room for original art paintings in the in the fields, because one of the things you were saying is like 
a lot of the computer art is looking a lot the same. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's going to happen. It's like, as long as you separate your, once you step away from a brush and real oil paint and painting on whatever surface you're painting on a board or a canvas, it takes years to learn how to control this and to do it right. Okay? If you're using a computer, I don't care if you're a good artist, you, you, you can do X amount of things with a computer. Well, if another person can operate those programs as well as you can, they can do the same thing. Uh, there is that creativity. You might be a little bit more creative than another guy, but again, it's like an airbrush. I call an airbrush a, a common denominator tool. You get several artists doing the same thing on an airbrush, and if they're all pretty good, when you get finished, you don't know who did what. They all look good, and that's it. Yeah. Uh, when you take away your fingerprint of your art, in other words, you're so removed from it that, it's, that, that your personality is not in it, uh, which the, the computer does that. The computer makes better overall artwork all the way around. The quality of covers has gone up tremendously because, again, a lot of people can learn how to operate the programs and do good, decent art. But that's all, that's a plus. But the minus is yes, everybody can learn to operate them, and they can, uh, and it still is a, a sort of a, a glorified common denominator tool because the art's so good, and and you look at it, you still don't know which artist did it. It's like right, kind of lacks really personality good and, in a way, huh? It kind of lacks personality. I it guess. does. It's it's your personal fingerprints, what it like your spirit. When you do something by hand. No matter what, you come through. You know, it's like typing with the—I mean, writing with with your own uh, long hand. You write with a pencil, mm-hmm. or um, using a machine that's somewhere between your long hand and, and a typewriter. Okay, because mm-hmm. once you step away from it, you're removed from it. It loses that fingerprint. And like when I give yeah. art classes, I know people say, you're giving away all your secrets on painting. I said, no, I'm not, because you are the secret ingredient. As long as you're doing this by hand, it will look like you. It will look like me. Um, it will be you, you know. No. And so I think that there's going to be a demand, always be a demand for original art. I know more and more people are wanting to do, you know, get better on their, on their, I'd say, classical art, uh, painting, actually painting. And... Um, uh, I'd say for a young person to 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 want to know how to paint and know how to draw, uh, you got those skills are basic. You got to be an artist. Then go ahead and learn your computer stuff too. You got to be able to do that as well. But uh, but like with me, most of the stuff I do right now is, is original art for for people that's collecting art. And so sure. uh, you see a cover, some rich guy wants to cover. He sees it. He says, Oh, I want to buy that cover. Well, it doesn't exist, you know, because he wants that original piece. Well, it's in a computer. <laughs> right. And so with me, they see a cover like, I want to buy it. Oh, I, got to, I got it laying here, you know. <laughs> I got the original here. And so that's something that the original is one of a kind. It, it's it, the only one in the world, you know. Right. And, uh, and if you look close, you see the, you can see maybe pencil marks underneath. You can see a beard hair stuck in it and a man <laughs> or two, you know, and it's it's an original piece. There it is. You know. Know, it's got personality to it. Yeah, it's got personality. It does. It really does. So there is a great difference, and I think uh, computer will get better. It's here to stay, but I still think there's, there's, there's going to be demand for original art. I compare it to like a, a cabinet maker or a person that makes wood, you know, furniture out of wood. You know, you can pay a real cabinet maker a fortune to, to build you all your furniture and wait for it. It'll be unique, one of a kind, it'll last hundreds of years, okay? Or you can go to Walmart and buy a ripoff copy for, you know, $150, and, you know, it'll last maybe five years or something. Right. So I see the real two artists, your cabinet makers, your, your artist artists, your, these kind of people will... There will always be a demand because when they create something, that is it. That is the one of a kind, and um, yeah. there will always be a demand. But right now, we are in the computer age. I think it will keep growing. I mean, some of the people have already seen it turn a little bit more toward original art, they said. So I don't know. I don't really worry about it because I'm, I'm going to do original art. That's what I do. But I'm, like I said, I'm not against. 
But a young artist, I would I would go to conventions and look at your competition. I would target my publishers. I'd make my art better. Don't do nothing but anime, please. You know, <laughs> it's just like what if all you did was Walt Disney character looking things? You know, that's American animation look, and then uh, there's the Japanese animation look. So, you know, it's like every young kid in a, around is doing anime. It's like look, look. It's it's an easy thing to do, and um, and, and and in other words, like learn how to use an airbrush. Okay, everybody can learn how to do an airbrush, and most people get pretty good at it. Some people get really great at it. But why do that when you're you're competing now with a bajillion young people that do anime? And you know, right. show me something that's hard. Show me a drawing that or a painting that I can't do or my neighbor can't do. You know, blow my socks off. <laughs> yeah, that's it, and that's what you got to do to be accepted. It's like with your art when you you want to blow that guy's socks off when he's looking at your art. It's like music. If you just did somebody else's music all the time, you know how do you break in the music industry? Mainly, you you do some good original songs and you can play really good and you're tight and and you sound professional. It's original. And I'm like, wow, this is good, <laughs> you know. Because there's eight million little garage bands just playing everybody else's songs. It's pretty tight, you know. So you don't want to be one of those. You want to go beyond that. Well, Larry, thank you so much for giving us all of this time. I really appreciate it. Well, this has been a lot. I, of, this has been a lot of fun. Well, I uh, well, I'm a talker. I can talk all night about stuff like this. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we can have you back again sometime then, because sure. we, just, we love hearing uh, from you. This is yeah, great. like we got. Crazy convention stories and everything else in color. <laughs> we, de- we definitely got to get a part two. You know what? We got to catch up with you. Will you Will you be at GaryCon this year? Do what? Are you going up to GaryCon? No, I'm probably not going to be able to make it. Okay. Well, I like maybe you sometimes. We'll catch you. Maybe we'll catch you at one of the other places. Perhaps we'll okay. catch you at right. Gen yeah. Con or something like that. Yeah, I'm going to Gen Con, Dragon Con. I'll be going to Chicago Comic uh whatever that is, this in August this year. Okay. Cool. So. Well, thank you very much, and uh, go Packers, all right? <laughs> all right, that's right. <laughs> all right, have a good night. All right, you guys take it easy. All right, all right. thank you, Bye-bye. Larry. Now. Go for initiative.